The Right Optics by Silmo. Presented by Jason Kirk. Welcome to episode two of The Right Optics by Silmo. Brought to you ahead of this year's trade fair in Paris. I'm Jason Kirk, founder and managing director of Kirk & Kirk. As many of you know, I've worked in eyewear for many, many years, and my family's connection with the industry goes back to my grandfather and great-uncle, who founded Kirk Brothers way back in 1919. This series of podcasts is coming to you ahead of this year's Silmo, and I'm in conversation with the leading lights from the optics and commercial worlds, looking at the industry and hopefully inspiring you along the way. In this episode, I'm speaking to Daniel Feldman, Editor-in-Chief of the Optical Journal, the most visited optical news and fashion website in the world. He's also the founder of the optical marketing firm, DBA. And Daniel joins me now from Denver, Colorado. Good day to you, Daniel. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. Daniel, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming coming along today. Um, did you grow up in Colorado? I am a third generation Colorado native. And my grandson, who is close by here, is a sixth generation Colorado native. So my family came here from Eastern Europe uh, before the turn of the 20th century. So in Colorado, that entitles me to a special license plate, should I think it was good looking enough. I don't like it. So <laughs> I choose not to get it. But uh, yeah, our whole family has been here for quite some time. And for us, um, knowing natives of Colorado is nothing strange. For everyone I meet on the street, they think that's some remarkable achievement. So when you were growing up, did you always want to be in optics? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I got into the optical industry in a very roundabout way. As a matter of fact, I remember growing up, uh, going to our yearly visit with the optometrist, and I think I was nine or ten, and the doctor said to my mother, you can tell him to come back when he's 30, uh, and I'll see your daughter next year. My sister always had poor eyesight, so she went every year. I never visited again until I needed uh, reading glasses much later in life. And I got into the uh, sporting goods business, which was part of a family business. Uh, I ended up doing advertising for my uncle's chain of stores. And uh, as you know, Jason, all too well, when you work for the family, you do twice as much work for half the pay. <laughs> and I thought I was entitled to a raise, something other than my uncle handing me the keys to his Cadillac, which I thought he was being polite about. And he said, no, I have a jack in the back trunk. You can bring that in and I'll raise you up. Um, so I left the family business and ended up in the jewelry business for quite some time. I did marketing for a university for some time and then eventually ventured into my own advertising agency. Um, ended up working for a premier chain of optical shops here in Colorado. And he liked my work so much that he introduced me to his friends who introduced me to their friends. And it took me a few years to realize suddenly I'm in the optical business. So I started writing for several publications uh, and websites, two of which I eventually took over and merged and that is what became the optical journal so that experience is fascinating and you obviously brought a lot from outside of your industry and, and what you were doing before you were in optics when you came into optics did you notice some 
glaring gaps in the industry, some things that you could bring immediately? Oh my goodness, yes. Because every time I would speak to the magazines or a trade show and they would say, well, who wants to listen to you? You're not an optometrist. What do you know about marketing? And I would have to reply, I know a lot about marketing. What do optometrists know about marketing? Uh, you know, some of them got lucky and ended up doing a good job. But by the same token, you know, I could sit behind a phoropter and spin it and grin it, and I might get lucky once in a while and actually give a good uh, prescription to somebody. You know, an interesting thing is I'll ask a uh, optometrist, how many classes did they take in optometry school about marketing or for that matter, accounting or business law or anything else? You end up, you have to rely on professionals to do this. And that's something that even today, I think many optometry practices are missing. I think that's a, a really important point. And I think something that's really discussed a lot these days is how opticians are trained and prepared for the commercial world. Are they, has anything really changed? Are they prepared and trained to run a business? Are they prepared to be commercial or are they medical? Has that really changed? So we have a discussion uh, quite often in the United States uh, about wearing scrubs or wearing a coat and tie for the gentleman or a, a nice uh, dress or pantsuit for the ladies uh, or dressing casual even. And it's, a, it's an interesting discussion because doctors have patients, opticians do not. And at least here in the States. So when a doctor hands off their patient to an optician, a change needs to happen in that process. When you call someone a patient, they reach for their insurance card. They're asking the insurance to cover the cost. And so now they get cheap. When you call someone a customer, they tend to reach for their credit card. So now your opportunities are greatly expanded. So are you saying that the role of the optician is commercial or medical? Commercial. They're more of a pharmacist, I suppose. Uh, but every pharmacist I've ever been to also sells things more than just the medication that's been prescribed. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? When you look at what happened during COVID and the way that it changed the the relationship between opticians and, and their customers, the consumer, um, people spending more time, opticians spending more time with the customers and the spend going up. It's just a very obvious correlation. When we're talking about clothing, it's a very uh, visible trend in France that a lot of the independent opticians wear leather aprons and other things as well, not just leather aprons. Um, <laughs> I haven't been to that kinky store yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get you there. Next time you come over to Paris, we'll see you next week. Um the, the the suggestion being that they're craftsmen and that's what they want to put across to the customer that's coming in the store, which is really interesting. For me, there are two parts of the transaction. One part is very medical and it's about the lenses and the customer, the consumer will trust the optician wholeheartedly without any reservation about the advice that they give. But the other part of the transaction is a frame and it's about fashion and styling. And the question is, do you trust the person standing opposite you to give you styling advice? Well, hopefully. I mean, if they're wearing, uh, you know, baggy jeans that don't fit well and and a shirt that doesn't look well, uh, you're far less likely to take their fashion advice. If they're wearing scrubs, even. Uh, scrubs are not very fashionable. You know, certainly some have 
prints on them and whatnot, but you don't want to take uh, fashion advice and buy uh, a cocktail dress from someone wearing scrubs. And by the same token, why would you buy a $300, dollars $500 uh, frame from someone wearing scrubs? Absolutely. You want to take advice from somebody who, who you aspire to, whose advice you want to listen to. I think that's very much part of, of what, where opticians need to be. Let's move on to uh, the professional media. Um, what do you feel is the role of professional media these days? Do you think it's evolved? Do you think it's evolving? So much has changed. Are you talking about the optical publications? Trade press for optics, yes. Oh, yeah. No, there's, uh, well, for one, there's a lot of us. Uh, and like frame companies, it's a growing field. There are bloggers who take particular interest in, in certain niches. There are the the big uh, printed publications, and each of them have their own niche as well. And, you know, we're all trying to find a fit within the community. Uh, I've evolved uh, the Optical Vision site and Optical Vision Resources, now the Optical Journal, into something that uh, has changed dramatically over the last three years. We're much more international now. Uh, I love going to the international shows. I love going to Silmo and Mito, et cetera. And, and it helps bring a perspective that I think a lot of North American optical shops were missing. Do you think that the consumer is actually looking at the optical trade press? Do you think the consumer has access there's a there's a hunger for information isn't there yes consumers consumers now i mean especially during lockdown we were at home and when we were shopping we were thinking about well i'm going to have a little look and a bit of research and people were discovering brands that they didn't know before and they were shopping intelligently and so the consumer is much more informed do you think that the professional press is reaching the consumer and does it want to well we made a very conscious decision uh in publishing the optical journal we do not talk about wholesale costs we do not talk about suggested retail costs we leave all those items out for that very reason we don't want to give a consumer ammunition of well i know you mark these up two and a half times or three times or whatever they don't understand the cost of doing business for an optical shop and so why give them that ammunition? If uh, a line of frames that we're covering a story on is of interest to any optician, to any optometrist, we have a link and they're able to reach out to that company and talk about uh, the costs of buying those frames from them. It's not something that we cover. So, Daniel, do you think the Internet is going to catch on? Oh, I think the Internet's a fad. It'll never go. <laughs> The internet is only growing and it's become such a integral part of our lives. When you think back even five years ago about waiting rooms in optometry offices that had TVs playing special videos and special presentations, those are all gone today because what does everyone do when they sit in a waiting room or are waiting in a sitting room? They're looking at their phone for you know, any optical shop, they should be providing free internet, free Wi-Fi for their customers and patients. And they should have to pass a gate 
that has some sort of option that says, you know, thank you for coming into Jones Optical today. Did you know that we are offering 20% off lenses today or we're offering a special on anti-reflective coatings or uh, a second pair is only going to be X? Those sorts of things are going to help those stores sell better and sell more. The the um, way that we use social media, it's a it's an art, isn't it? And I am constantly bombarded with people trying to sell me their services. But the skill involved in being effective and being cost effective in the way that you run your social media uh, is enormous. How do people discern? Let I mean, let's face it, most opticians and most people are not equipped to really take advantage and use the internet effectively and social media effectively. So how do people discern who they should use and how can they get the most effective presence online? Well, I think like anything else, you're going to look for people who are successful at what they're doing. Uh, If we, to be honest, if we could all afford Kim Kardashian uh, promoting our goods and services, we would. You know, the Kardashian family has been immensely successful using social media, but they've also become billionaires doing so. So it's not cheap. And we have people who are, you know, doing it blindly by, you know, knocking into walls and maybe they'll be successful. And then there are others who are tremendously successful and learning on the job. And, you know, take a look at how many followers does somebody have. That's usually the first clue. You know, you can look at, uh, you know, optical shop A and see that they have 52 followers. That's pretty much, uh, you know, mother-in-laws and sister-in-laws. And you can look at somebody who has 5,000 followers and say, well, they've grown their business uh, through doing something right. What can I learn from them? And, that's always been the key to marketing. Uh, I go back to my old jewelry days when I was with a national jeweler uh, here in the States and all the managers would send shopping reports. And this is what my competitor is doing wrong here. And this is what my competitor is doing wrong there. And I said, I don't want to know what they're doing wrong. I want to know what they're doing right. If you could steal one good idea from every one of your competitors and Put them into action in your store. Nobody's going to beat you. Can you give us one good idea free for our silver audience? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> varies on to who's, who's doing what. I think part of it is to be honest and to be who you are and develop your own uh, identity. Don't try and exactly copy somebody else, uh, but be there and be often. Industry voices, insight, and inspiration. The Right Optics by Silmo. Daniel, we're looking at the internet, social media, how we communicate. One really interesting development that's happened recently is the optical metaverse. What do you think about that? I think that's going to be so cool. Uh, Charlene Nichols is uh, working her tail off to... Uh, create something amazing. And while it's in its infancy, uh, it's only going to grow. It's going to be, it's going to be huge. Uh, This uh, web 3.0 is going to grow and we, uh, we should be a part of it. Those who are, uh, those who want to lead should join in and become a part of this. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. 
Uh, is the optician ready for this? No. no. <laughs> is the consumer ready for this? Partly. But what happens when the consumer's ready and the optician isn't? And that's, that's a question that you can ask so in so many domains around optics. What happens when the consumer's ready and the optician isn't up with the consumer? Well, that's the story of uh, most any business is uh, trying to keep up. And uh, if I could paraphrase Benjamin Franklin, which I do often in this regard, the only thing constant in this world is change. So once we got used to MySpace, there was no MySpace. We got used to Facebook and then it became Instagram and now it's TikTok or Snapchat and this Web 3.0, this optical metaverse, this is the next thing. So in a nutshell, Daniel, what do we mean by the optical metaverse and how do we find out about it? Well, the optical metaverse is uh, opticals moving into the Web 3.0, which is 3D. It is a decentralized form of the web with NFTs and tokenism. Um, and this is where the online world is moving to. Uh, it's big in video games right now, and it's moving to retail. Yeah, you have your ear to the ground. You're constantly visiting trade shows. You create amazing podcasts all the time. You're writing about the latest innovations. What are you seeing changing in the profession right now? I see people taking chances. I see people doing amazing designs. And I'm not just talking about uh, Jason and Karen Kirk. I'm talking about people around the world are finding new ways to make eyewear and new designs to make eyewear. And I think it's wonderfully exciting that the consumer has more options than just the multinational five. Absolutely. Um, do you think that the young designers are finding their way into a very crowded profession? It is very crowded, but good designs will, uh, will always show through. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really encourage people to get out of their comfort zone and go to a Silmo, go to a Mito, go to an Opti, take, uh, you know, Get on an airplane and do something a little different than a Vision Expo. Don't get me wrong. I like Vision Expo. It's a great show. I, I like the loft. They do wonderfully as well. Uh, but it's a U.S.-based show. And you're visiting U.S.-based vendors who have displayed things uh, the same way they always have. And as you talk about opticians who train opticians who train opticians who train opticians, getting out of that comfort zone and, and taking that trip overseas and seeing something different, seeing a Silmo and seeing how eyewear is displayed in amazing ways and booths that will just blow your mind is a, if you do nothing else than just window shop, it's worth the trip. Absolutely. It's a very good reason to visit the international trade shows. And Silmo coming up next week, I'm sure we're going to see, I think it's something like 20,000 people visit that show every year. So it's going to be pretty amazing. And uh, a chance for uh, the optical community to get together. One of the things that I find really fascinating at the moment is how attractive optics is as, as an investment. People coming from outside of the industry, well, we go back a few years and look at Warby Parker. We can look at companies like Ace and Tate, like Jimmy Fairley. Um, all these groups that see optics as a massive opportunity and an industry that's under potential. At the same time, 
I wonder whether we are attracting real talent into our industry, not just the money, but the actual people that can really move and shake what Optics stands for and shake the perception of Optics in the eyes of the consumer. Do you think we're doing enough to bring brilliant people in? Uh, I think certain people are and certain people aren't. Uh, I saw someone sharing a help wanted ad for an optical shop in Texas who was hiring experienced opticians for $15 an hour. Well, you know what? That's what Taco Bell and McDonald's pay from what I understand. So why would somebody who's uh, spent years learning a craft, learning a trade, want to work for so little money? You've got to pay quality people a quality wage and you will attract talent. That's interesting. And and what about people that are going to start their own stores? I've seen some really exciting new retail, uh, particularly in the US. Um, we're seeing it. We're seeing it in the UK as well. The UK's really developed too, and in certain cases in France as well. Um, certain places in Europe, we're seeing things. But some real groundbreaking retail. What do we do to get those people in? Is optics an attractive enough industry to bring people in? I think there's tremendous opportunity in optics. I think for someone who's willing to work hard, to be creative, to be innovative, the sky's the limit. I think you're absolutely right. And, we, and you're also right that we've got to pay people enough. There's a nice opportunity for a combination between Taco Bell and an optical store, though. That could be quite nice, couldn't it? <laughs> Free tacos with your glasses. <laughs> there are also outside influences, aren't there? And with everything that's going on at the moment, the economic environment, cost of living, Europe at war, what effect do you see that having on the way that we do business? I think as people get a little um, afraid for themselves when they when they feel uh, their pocketbook is under attack, let alone, as you say, Europe at war, your own home under attack, you tend to be a little more conservative. Uh, when people feel more open about uh, the opportunities that lie ahead for them, they're willing to spend more and take more chances. I thought that, to be perfectly honest, when I went to uh, both Vision Expo and Mido this year, uh, the two trade shows, you know, earlier this spring, after two years of basically not having shows, I was kind of disappointed in the uh, in the eyewear that I saw that there wasn't a lot of new, colorful, bold innovation. It was very conservative. And I wonder whether many of these companies saw uh, inflation and whatnot and said, you know what, people are going to be conservative. We're going to present conservative eyewear. I think there might be more to it than that. And I'm probably going to give away a few inside trade secrets. But one of the things that happened, so you know that we produced Kirk and Kirk in France, and that was a savior for us. It was fantastic during the pandemic because a lot of the... Um, the slowdown in production was happening in the Far East and France was little affected at the beginning. But as people couldn't get their frames produced in the Far East, they started bringing their production back to Europe and it put massive pressure on the factories. So just getting stock, getting your normal stock was difficult enough, but actually developing new product with factories became next to impossible. Uh, so if people are influenced by economic not wanting to take too many risks i think that's probably true but i think at the same time there are certain physical realities and this is a time as well when different sectors of the industry need to work together and, and need to be really 
honest and upfront with each other about what capabilities are and what limitations are. It's the same for production. It's the same for design. It's the same for trade shows. What do we need to do? What do we in the current circumstances? Because it's clear there are constraints. It's clear there are difficulties for everybody. And one of the things that I notice is the relationship between the retailer and the brand. And that needs to be so much more of a partnership. There needs to be so much more understanding there. I was frustrated during the pandemic, during the lockdown, that people weren't working together more, weren't grouping more, weren't becoming, for lack of a better word, a a union of independent people in the sector. I think we really missed an opportunity there, but I think there's still time. What do you think about that? Well, I think a partnership is always a great thing. The problem is that word has been bandied about by some of the bigger companies for years. Um, you know, their retailers were their partners, and then they just went around and competed directly against them. And so some of that partnership uh, has has a bad tone, a bad taste about it today. Because when you have a company saying we should partner and then they compete directly against you, uh, that kind of spoils that partnership. I realize what you're trying to say is a true and genuine partnership, and we should. But I think a lot of those big multinationals kind of ruined the feeling of that. I think it's a shame, but I think there's, there's still opportunity. And it's it's a linguistic conundrum, I think we've got there, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, listen, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, How do we find the Optical Journal? Opticaljournal.com, and thank you very much for asking. Uh, We're also on uh, Instagram and Facebook, but please visit opticaljournal.com and uh, feel free to write us with any suggestions or questions. Daniel, thanks ever so much, and look forward to seeing you at Silmo. Thank you so much. And if you want to find me... Head over to Instagram, just do a little search for at Kirk and Kirk or visit kirkandkirk.com to find out more about what we do. And uh, just a little heads up, during Silmo, we'll bring you an episode every day of the Right Optics podcast, capturing all the colour, voices, trends and talking points of this year's international trade show. Thanks for listening. Uh, and don't forget, you can find more episodes of the Silmo podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Right Optics podcast is brought to you by Silmo the leading trade show for eyewear and optics. Come and join us from September the 23rd until September the 26th at Parc des Expositions at Paris-Villepinte. For more information, go to www.silmoparis.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Silmo Paris.